It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Xi Jinping, the president of China, has been in office for five years, and it looks like he will be around a lot longer. While he's at it, here are some more names you might want to become familiar with. Liu He, Yi Gang, Liu Kun. These three men will be the brains behind China's economic and financial policy, probably for at least the next five years. And that means they could also help direct or deflect a possible trade war between the U.S. and China. All in all, they will shape the world's second largest economy and, in turn, have a major impact on the rest of the world. Welcome to Benchmark. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. And I'm Daniel Moss, economics writer and editor at Bloomberg View in New York. So, Dan, Xi Jinping seems pretty firmly in control of China these days. Why should we care about some of his underlings? Xi may be firmly in control, but he can't be everywhere doing everything at all times. He also knows that the party's success depends on economic stability. That means no economic blow-ups. The more range of opinions you can listen to, the safer you'll be. All right, well, let's find out some more about this range of opinions with our guest. Nicholas Lardy is one of the foremost scholars on China's economy, having studied it for decades. He's been a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington for 15 years, and his most recent book is Markets Over Mao, The Rise of Private Business in China. Nick, welcome to Benchmark. Thank you. First of all, Nick, who is Liu He? Well, Liu He is uh, a sort of economic technocrat who has served uh, in a couple of administrations over the past decade at fairly high positions. He hasn't been extremely visible, but he's been vice chairman of one of the most important committees that deals with the economy, the National Economic Development and Reform Commission. He's also been head of a small leading group on finance and economics, which is a very important behind-the-scenes advisor. And now he's going to be a vice premier with a pretty broad economic portfolio. How did he get so close to Xi Jinping over the years to uh, eventually get into this kind of position? Well, you're right. He has developed a good relationship with Xi Jinping, and um, all indications are that he will continue to be a fairly influential voice. I would caution, however, that it's a little bit hard to know exactly where Liu He stands on some issues. He seems to be able to serve masters that have disparate views on economic issues. So I don't necessarily think he's going to be in the driver's seat, but he will be a very strong implementer of the policies that uh, she wants to support. Taking a broader look at the Chinese economy, 
Nick, you've written that China is much more of a private sector economy than popular discourse would seem to recognise. There's a lot of talk about how President Xi has cemented control of the political system. What's happening on the ground with the economy? How much day-to-day control does he have? Over the last few years, Xi has exerted a great deal more control over the economy. There has been what I think is fairly described as a, a bit of a resurgence of the state. About three quarters of China's GDP is being generated by private firms. But under Xi, we've seen a proliferation of industrial policies. Uh, state banks have been lending more money to state companies. And Xi aspires that the state will play a much bigger role in the economy. How successful that will be ultimately, I think, remains to be seen. But when we talk about private companies in China, don't a lot of them have Communist Party cells or leaders that are installed to help direct the company business in line with objectives that the party has set ultimately by President Xi? Well, China for more than two decades has required party committees in all enterprises, whether they're state-owned or privately owned. So this is not a new development, at least in a technical sense. Now, what really remains to be seen is, are these committees going to take a much stronger role than they have had in the past? Certainly, there's not much evidence that party committees in private enterprises have persuaded these companies to do things that they think are against their interests. On the other hand, if you're a big company like Alibaba and you're Jack Ma, the the billionaire CEO, you certainly want to be perceived as uh, carrying out policies that are consistent with those of the party. Talk to us about Yi Gung, the new central bank governor. Last month in Hong Kong, there was some chat that Liu He would get both jobs, vice premier and governor of the People's Bank of China. What does it say that the deputy governor has been elevated? Well, I think it's a very important move. I think it would have been unrealistic for Liu He to be a vice premier and uh, the central bank governor simultaneously. This is something Zhu Rongji did back in the late 90s, but I think the central bank governor's job has become much more important, much more time-consuming, and requires a lot more international travel than Liu He could undertake. I think the fact that Igang has been elevated implies that we will have uh, substantial continuity on monetary policy, exchange rate policy, and all the things that the central bank uh, has an influence on. He is Western educated. He went back to China in 1994. He's worked his way up in the central bank over a period of several decades. And he has been the lead brains behind some of the most important reforms in the financial sector over the last 20 years. And most notably, he was the architect for the liberalization of interest rates, which started in the late 90s and was not really completed until about the middle of 2013. So it was a very long, gradual process in which they moved from a system in which all interest rates on both deposits and loans were fixed and immovable to one in which these rates are now being determined largely by market forces. Nick, as long as we're talking about China's central bank, can we talk about how much power the central bank actually has, the People's Bank of China. The independence of China's central bank is different from that of, say, the Federal Reserve or European Central Bank, right? Yes. The Chinese central bank is not independent in the traditional sense of that word. 
it needs to get approval for any major changes in the interest rates that it tries to influence or you know, things like the discount rate and so forth. Changes in exchange rate policy that it manages have to be approved at much higher levels. On the other hand, the central bank in China, at least under the previous governor, Zhou Xiaochuan, has had an enormous influence on the economy, and they have the bank has weighed in on a range of economic policies, fiscal policy, tax policy. So, yes, it's not independent. It's not completely free to carry out the usual kinds of monetary operations without approval. But you would not find the head of the Federal Reserve in the United States offering opinions about tax policy, fiscal policy, in the same way that we've seen in China. So the central bank governor has been a key economic policymaker weighing in on a very broad range of economic issues. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. In the West, Nick, we're used to the finance minister or the treasury secretary of a given nation being the big economic cheese. Is that the case in China? Well, it certainly hasn't been in recent years. The Ministry of Finance in China seems to focus primarily on the tax side, the collection of taxes, changes in the tax laws, enforcement of tax laws, and so forth. And they have not been a big shaper of broad macroeconomic policy in the same way that we would be familiar with in the United States. So I think the central bank has actually been more important in that domain than most other agencies in China. So the name that we have as the new finance minister is someone named Liu Kun, and I confess, even as somebody who who spent a few years in China covering China's economy, I was not familiar with him. What do we know about him, and what does his appointment say about any kind of direction of policy? Well, I think very little. The previous uh, Ministry of Finance was a man who came out of the tax bureau of the ministry and was promoted to be minister. I'm not even aware as you aren't about the background of Liu Quinn, but I would not expect him to be a main shaper of policy. I would expect the person that we haven't talked about who would be much more important is Guo Xuqing, who's now been named to head, who has been head of the Central Bank, uh, the Bank Regulatory Commission, and is now going to take charge of the merged bank and insurance regulator. He's a very strong reformer. He's a much stronger personality. And I think he'll work very well together with people like Liu He and Egan. Let's switch to look at the broader economic dynamic, particularly between the world's two largest economies, China and the United States. We hear a lot about the Trump administration's desire to reduce America's trade deficit with China, We also hear a lot about tariffs and other measures that may be imposed. Can you break this down a bit for us? In particular, I'm wondering, given the extent of global supply chains, how much of the stuff the U.S. imports from China actually originates somewhere else 
from an American company? Well, a very large share of what China sells to us is actually produced by what we would call foreign affiliates, that is, multinational companies based in China. Many of them, of course, are U.S. multinationals, but there's some European and other multinationals operating in China. And these companies typically supply final products that are based on long production chains, as your question suggests. They're buying inputs from all over the world, producing products in China, and then selling them back into the United States. So the Chinese content of these products is typically very low. Obviously, the best examples are the Apple products, iPhones, iPads, which are made almost exclusively in China. And the foreign content is 85 90% of the value of the product. Now, what this means is if tariffs are put on those kinds of products, consumer electronics in particular, we will impose some pain on China, but a great deal of the pain will be transferred to the countries and the companies that are supplying all the inputs that go in to these uh, consumer electronic products. So this will have an adverse effect on companies in Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia, and others. So this is where I think Mr. Trump makes a mistake when he says it's easy to win a trade war. Both countries will lose if there's a trade war, and we will not just impose costs on China, but a lot of these costs will be transmitted to other countries, particularly those in East Asia. Your example of the iPhone is an interesting one. Apple, an iconic American company headquartered in California, but if I hear you correctly, Nick, iPhones might be subject to tariffs? Well, they could be. The rumor is consumer electronics will be on the list, and interestingly, Apple doesn't make any of these products. The products are actually made by a Taiwanese company that operates in China. It's actually one of China's biggest employers, a company that is technically Hanhai, or it sometimes goes by its trade name of Foxconn. So it just shows the complexity. You have an iconic American-designed product by an American firm, Apple, sold in the United States, but it's being produced in China by a Taiwanese company that is drawing uh, parts and components from the global supply chain. Now, as we record this, some of the details are still in flux, but it does seem like there will be a trade conflict between the U.S. and China that could go on for some time. Nick, how do you see this playing out? And also, when we talk about, again, people like Liu He and Yi Gong, when they're making decisions that affect China's economy or how China approaches these issues, what objectives are they going for and what are they trying to protect as far as China's economy goes? Well, I think um, they're doing everything possible to avoid a trade conflict with the United States. Uh, Liu He made a trip to Washington several weeks ago to try to enter into serious discussions with the U.S. administration. Quite frankly, he was basically rebuffed. The posture of the administration seems to be, we don't want to negotiate anymore. That hasn't been sufficiently effective in the past. We want to see some results. So they're going to this more unilateral approach. I think the other person to figure in this discussion should be Wang Qishan. Wang Qishan has been named vice president of China. He is well known to many Americans in the financial sector and the business sector. 
And I think he will play a similarly large role in trying to manage the economic relationship uh, with the United States. So, Nick, when we see large headline numbers, 50 billion, 60 billion, associated with US actions against China, is that really just a negotiation? How should we be looking at this? Well, I think that remains to be seen. The administration is probably going to announce a target of a very big number, 30, 60, we don't know exactly. But it will take some time to identify the exact products that they're going to impose these uh, tariffs on. So this certainly certainly could set up a window in which negotiations ensue. And it might not just be with the Chinese. If uh, consumer electronic products are on the list to, to be subject to high tariffs, then you would probably have companies like Apple and other U.S. consumer products companies lobbying the administration to exempt their products from uh, such tariffs. And quite frankly, I think one of the reasons it's taken a long time for this to play out is it's very difficult to identify products that we could impose tariffs on that would not have adverse effects on our own companies or other countries in Asia that supply inputs to the products that are being exported from China. So thinking about how this might play out, does China have more to lose from a trade war? Does the U.S. have more to lose from a trade war? Or are they both likely to lose in a trade war? Well, I think in a trade war, if it comes to that, both countries would lose quite substantially. U.S. consumers are going to pay more. We're not going to create any new jobs if tariffs are put on consumer electronic products. You know, Apple is not going to start producing iPhones in Silicon Valley tomorrow, that we simply don't have the capability to produce many of the products that we import from from China. So what would happen is uh, some of these electronic manufacturing services companies like Foxconn also have production facilities elsewhere in Asia, so they will simply switch the production of these products from China to Vietnam or India or other places where they have facilities already in place. They couldn't do a complete substitution in the short run because their capacity is very heavily concentrated in China, but some of the production would move. So this is a long way of saying not likely to have any positive effect on employment in the United States, likely to have very large negative impact on consumers because prices will go up. Nick, how much is the U.S. to blame for its large trade deficit with China? It's pursuing a policy of fiscal expansion at a time when China is pursuing a policy of fiscal consolidation. What's going on here? Well, I think what's going on is that the level of saving in the United States is very low, and the expansion of the fiscal deficit, which is occurring and will continue for quite a few more years, means that our savings shortfall from a national perspective will be getting bigger and bigger, which means we need to borrow money from the rest of the world. And the only way the rest of the world will have the money to lend to us is if they sell us more products than we buy from them. So ultimately, the trade imbalances are largely a function of these macroeconomic variables, much more than they are a function of tariffs or trade restrictions or protectionism. And I think you can see that very clearly in the case of China. Their current account surplus, which is a broad measure of goods and services and a couple of other things, is only one 
0.2% of their GDP. It's extremely small by international standards. So globally, they did not have a big surplus. But they have a big surplus with the United States. The United States has a big deficit with China. And I think it's a function of problems that originate in the U.S. economy. In other words, the administration portrays China as being highly protectionist, and it certainly is protectionist in some domains. But it does not have a big global trade surplus. Its global trade surplus is very small. Relative to the size of its economy, it's much, much less than the surplus of Germany, for example. Well, Nick, this story is obviously far from over, and we'll all be listening to what you have to say in the coming months on whatever happens between the U.S. and China on trade. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Thank you. Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, and podcast destinations such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please take the time to rate and review the show, and you can also find us on Twitter. You can follow me at, at Scott Landman. Dan, you're at Moss underscore Eco. And Nick's employer, the Peterson Institute, is at, at PIIE. Benchmark is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.